You're listening to The Daniel Glass Show, only on Drummer's Resource. This is it, right here. Uh-huh. Then you gotta add some with the little tricks. Ah, ah, you'll be swinging. Uh-huh. Right. It's The Daniel Glass Show on Drummer's Resource, offering a deeper look into Daniel's unique take on music, drumming, and life. Philosophy, motivation, musical deconstructions, and conversations with influential voices in the music industry. Hey everybody, it is Daniel Glass and I want to welcome you back for a special episode of the Daniel Glass Show here on Drummer's Resource, uh, home of the Daniel Glass Show. As probably many of you have noticed, I am not doing podcasts as regularly as I was in the past, but um, I am trying to get them out on a somewhat regular basis. And uh, um, I don't have any, I don't have any fancy sponsors, but I do want to make one announcement. Today's Episode of the Daniel Glass Show on Drummer's Resources sponsored by Daniel Glass, who uh, um, I just want to make an announcement that the 2023 Daniel Glass European Jazz Intensive is now open. We are, we are opening it almost a year early. We had such an amazing response this past year. We had practically a full house. Um, and uh, uh, it's really been building shockingly in a small town uh an hour south of frankfurt germany but we have an amazing time there we do it at this great uh school called the groovkist um and there will be um some videos uh, and other such things up on the uh on the website for the jazz intensive so um let's see uh you can uh just go to my website daniel glass dot com forward slash um well you can go to the uh clinics and intensives tab on my website at danielglass.com uh i think it's just forward slash clinics but you, you can find the tab and all the information is there we are open we are accepting registrations for 2023 and it looks like um you know i normally bring my trio over and it looks like we are already booking some concerts um around that uh, event. So we're going to be doing kind of a, a German tour uh, next October. I think as I should mention the dates. October, I believe it's 12th through the 16th, 2023. October 12th through the 16th. So right now, if you get on board, uh, if you're within Europe, uh, we're going to have a bank of hotel rooms. You can jump on that pretty soon. And if you're coming from elsewhere, flights are still cheap and um, you know you have time to plan. All right. With that said, from our from our sponsor, me, haha. Let's jump into today's topic. Um, I don't even know how to get into this. It's so crazy. Um, two or three days ago, I posted a uh, a meme on my uh, Daniel Glass Drummer Author Educator Facebook page. This is my business page. I've been running this page for ten years now. Uh, I have a really amazing following over 66,000 people follow me on this page and generally the posts that I put up get a, a really nice response usually somewhere between mm, two three hundred likes um, 30 40 shares uh, lots of comments lots of engagement it's a really cool place and we have a lot of awesome conversations about music and drumming and philosophy and life and it's great but uh, just a few days ago I posted um, a 
a just a meme. There was no other wording. It said there is a difference between being able to play an instrument and making music. There's a difference between being able to play an instrument and making music. Now, what did I mean by this? Um, what I meant by this is that oftentimes we as musicians are very focused on the technical development of our instrument, getting better, practicing, learning more stuff, uh, and mastering our instrument. And I think often there is such an emphasis, especially these days, there's such an emphasis on, um, you know, proficiency, being great, shredding, kicking ass on your instrument. There's so many uh, drum solo videos and drum shredding videos. And, you know, we all know exactly what I'm talking about on, on social media, on YouTube, that people forget that we're here to play music. Um, a lot of times, you know, with a, with a lot of videos, it's just somebody sets up like a two chord, you know, programs a two chord thing, and then they just solo over it for 10 minutes. And people think this is what music is now. So making music is a completely different thing. And, you know, I guess my point was that sometimes we lose the forest for the trees with, with this. And I myself went through this. I spent a lot of time, especially when I began to study jazz, feeling like technical proficiency was where I needed to get to, um, that I was only going to be a good jazz player if I was good on my instrument. And in reality, to me, making music is a different thing. Making music is about creating something. I mean, of course, you can, you know, any kind of sound that you make on any kind of instrument, we could say that's making music. But in the, the context of, of, of my page and in the context of this meme, the idea was you don't need to be technically proficient to make music. Yes, obviously you need a certain number of skills, but it's it's what is important to me what making music means is that you're able to connect with your audience you're able to say something through the sounds that you produce that are meaningful to others now somebody might you know counteract me and say well as long as i am happy with my music then why should i care what the effect is yes i agree in principle and we could argue the principles into the ground, which huh, a lot of people did on this post. Um, but to me, most of the people here are trying to be either successful professionally, they're trying to get their band off the ground, they're trying to, you know, make it on some level or another as a musician. And so that's why I created this post, because I think it's important that we try to understand and grapple with what is our role you know, I'm a drummer. Many of the people that follow this page are drummers. But any for any musician, how can we impact and affect people? Okay, so I put out this post. I said there is a difference between being able to play an instrument and making music. And the response was was amazing. I got 1,100 likes on the post, 253 comments, 81 shares. Uh, and it was a lot of controversy, which sort of surprised me because a lot of people, you know, were, um, I don't, you know, this idea of what is making music? What does it mean to be a musician? And it, it's a very hotly contested topic. I try as the moderator to generate content that, um, that then, okay, go discuss. So within the, the responses, there was a lot of sort of back and forth, 
And then people would start to bring in examples of bands or musicians that they thought were musical or not musical. Um, and I think a lot of people got my my basic point, which is that you could be a master of your instrument. You can have a lot of technical facility and still not connect with anybody. You can just not be musical in my estimation. So um, in light of this post, uh, on Twitter, maybe a week or two ago, I saw a clip of the B-52s doing Rock Lobster right at the beginning of their career, 1980, uh, on Saturday Night Live. And I was blown away by this clip. You know, um, I grew up during the time that the B-52s and other bands like that came out. They used to play Rock Lobster at my high school dances. I thought it was kind of a silly, fun song. I didn't. I thought it was kind of a novelty. I didn't think too much of it. Um, and I didn't really respect it as a great piece of music. I just thought it was kind of a lark. It was kind of silly. Um, but when I saw this clip, uh, I was... I was really amazed at what was going on. And to me, the B-52s spoke to my point about you don't necessarily need a lot of technical facility. You don't need to be uh, super shredding on your instrument. I don't know what other words to use in order to make great music and affect people. Because the B-52s in a lot of ways are the opposite of this. Their intention was not to come off as being virtuosos on their instruments, even though they were good musicians, no doubt about it. Um, but they were about creating a vibe and um, affecting their audience, creating this idea of the fun party band. But when I saw this clip, I I saw how the sausage was made. And I, this is a big thing with me. I'm, you know, as a historian, I like to look at, old photographs, old clips. Most people would sort of look at them and yeah, that's the B-52s. They're playing Rock Lobster. Okay. But what's really going on? There's a lot going on that you can glean from watching this clip. And that's kind of what I want to talk about today. Um, but I, before I actually get into the B-52s and talking about their impact and are they good musicians? Are they not? Are they trained musicians? Are they not? Is this music? Is this crap? And believe you me, you know, I, I have to I have to talk about what's been happening. So two days ago, I posted um, I posted this video of Rock Lobster. And um, it's kind of cool because I could not find this video on YouTube. And I managed to get a hold of it in another way from the Twitter video. Um, so you won't be able to find this on YouTube. You're going to have to go to my Facebook page to see it yourself. And I'm not going to be able to play the audio here on Drummer's Resource because Nick doesn't want um, Drummer's Resource to get sued <laughs> because there's licensing issues and all of that. So I'm going to talk a lot about this clip. I'm going to talk a lot about this band and you're going to have to go to Daniel Glass, well, facebook.com forward slash Daniel Glass Drums. You can also search Daniel Glass Drummer Author Educator and you'll find it. There's been another post or two that's gone up since, but you'll find You'll find this, uh, it was just posted two days ago. So here's what I wrote. I posted the, the clip of the B-52s and I said, um, a couple of days ago, I posted a meme that said there was a difference between being able to play an instrument and making music. 
that post generated a lot of controversy about the definition of music and how good one had to be on his or her instrument to qualify as a musician. To simplify my original point, I want you to check out this video. No, quote, trained, unquote, musicians here. No fancy chops. There's not even a bass player, but so much music. I put so much music in all caps. Now, the reason I put so much music is because in watching this clip, I, I saw something in a new way. And this is another sort of idea behind going back and looking. And this is 42 years ago already that this clip was released, 1980. Um, going back and looking at something maybe you've always seen and trying to look at it in a new way find new things about it, see beyond the surface. And I've gotten pretty good at doing that, being a researcher and historian for years and years, listening to audio in ways that listening for things maybe you don't listen to, you know, having been a musician and a, I've produced records and I've made records. So hearing things, seeing things and trying to dig beneath the surface. And when I watched this video, I found myself watching it over and over again and learning and discovering things about this band and about the time period uh, that I had never even thought about. And this is even more ironic because in 1998, my band Royal Crown Review actually did an entire summer tour with the B-52s and the Pretenders. It was an amazing tour because I was a fan of both those bands, but I really was not, as I said, not that much of a fan of the Bs. I knew their hits. And I quite enjoyed their show. Um, by that point, they had added, um, you know, there were four of the five original members were were still in the band. And, um, but they'd added an amazing, serious, heavyweight, funky rhythm section. Um, Charlie Drayton, who many people know, played with uh, Keith Richards for many years and the expensive winos. He was the bass player in that band. Steve Jordan was the drummer, but Charlie is an incredible, incredible drummer. He's actually the drummer that was on Love Shack, uh, the B-52's big hit from the early 90s. And uh, he and a bass player named Tracy Wormworth were the rhythm section on that tour. And I became friends with Charlie, good friends. And, um, you know, it was cool. But again, it wasn't something that really moved me personally. I enjoyed it a lot. It was great to be on tour. The Pretenders, on the other hand, I was I had been a huge fan as a kid. Uh, and I appreciated both bands because I came up in that post-punk. I was in high school when punk rock, you know, came out or a couple of years after punk rock came out and seeing all the amazing stuff that emerged during that time. Um, it, it, it was a great time to be in high school and to be just blown away with all this music. And we're going to talk more about that as we get into this podcast. But um, I didn't, I became quite friendly with Chrissy Hind and the other members of the band, Martin Chambers, of course, the longtime drummer with the Pretenders. And we were more social. The B-52s were a little more aloof. I remember we kind of became close with Fred Schneider, the, the lead singer who sings like ass. Um, but the rest of the rest of the band, you know, uh, the two two female singers, Kate Pearson and uh, Cindy Wilson, didn't really get to know them. Keith, who was playing guitar, uh, who's playing actually playing drums in this version of Rock Lobster, didn't didn't get to know him that well. Um, but anyway, 
even I feel bad because in that tour, had I known what I know now about their origins, I probably would have asked them a lot more questions um, or made some more requests or been more, more, um, you know, active in kind of pursuing them a little bit. And they were, they were quite nice people. They weren't rude or anything like that, but um, just didn't happen at that time. Anyway, so it's ironic that here I am all these years later, I really haven't thought much about the B-52 since 1998. And so that was, uh, what, uh, 24 years ago? <laughs> um, and here I am on this total kick. Now, I want to explain what happened when I posted this video because this is incredible. And I hope you can't hear all this bonging and binging behind me. But literally for the last two days, my phone, which I get um, notifications, is just on a constant uh, buzz. Uh, it's constantly popping up notifications. This this uh, this video I posted and this this post is has gone completely viral. Um, I've had some of my posts go viral on this page. This one is right in the middle of insane <laughs> vir virility, shall we say? At the moment, there the post has eight thousand nine hundred likes. Literally, when I started talking, it had 8,800 likes. Um, it's 8,700. It's added 200 more likes in the last 10, 15 minutes. It has 1,400 comments, 2,500 shares. Now, you might say, well, why is a clip that you posted from 42 years ago with a kind of a goofy band from, you know, the the new wave period getting so much response, so so much crazy response. Well, apparently <laughs> people have very, very strong opinions about the B-52s. Um, I just want to read you a few of the most recent uh, comments and they've been like this the whole time. Um, so I'm just, I'm on the page right now scrolling uh, and uh, let's see. Um, saw them last year. Fabulous. Um, uh, love the B-52s. Uh, not much music, in my opinion. Um, the worst music ever. Next comment. Love the B-52s. Uh, next comment. This group has always been horrible. Uh, next comment. That was incredible. Um, you know, and it, it, it goes on and on. And people got into these very long arguments about whether it's good and what's bad and you know, is this, is this the right thing? Uh, you know, is, is this, is this actually responding to my point, which is, does, are these musicians untrained? Many people got in my face about that. What do you mean they're untrained? Look at how well they play their instruments. And yeah, they do play their instruments well, but my point is, I don't think that they spent 10 years, you know, doing classical training and then, you know, suddenly created this band. They're good. There's no doubt about it. The B-52s are a great band. Um, but it's not about the technical proficiency. It's about the music. It's about the aesthetic. It's about what they wanted to do as a band. What was their mission as a band, which is to be an incredible party band and to bring an aesthetic sense to what they do. So, you know, in any case, people either love them, 
I, I have, you know, many people have said, why aren't they in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? And when I think about some of the bands that have been admitted to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, not saying anybody's better or worse, but when I think about the fact that, say, the Eurythmics are in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, but the B-52s aren't, um, if we're talking about influential, I'd say the B-52s take the cake there. It's not whether you like the music or not. And by the way, whereas many bands had a career that lasted less than 10 years or maybe less than 20 years, they they are still going. In fact, I think they are doing their quote-unquote farewell tour right now. But they've been around for more than 40 years, and it's the same members. One of the members, um, their original guitar player died at the age of 32, and we'll talk a little bit more about him. Uh, but, um, you know, then I think one of the other longtime members retired just a few years ago. But other than that, you know, the, Fred Schneider's still doing it, and um, Kate Pearson and Cindy Wilson are still involved. And, you know, that is a testament. And they've had hits, not just in the 70s, but in the 80s and in the 90s. They've they've guested on other, you know, people's albums. Um, I mean, they, they have had a, a Rock and Roll Hall of Fame worthy career right? So you got people saying that. Then you got people saying, this is like literally the worst shit ever. I am not, this is so bad. The worst music ever, somebody wrote. So how is it that you have people saying this should be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and this is the worst music ever? And apparently, you know, these opinions run strong because of the number of shares, the number of uh, comments, and, uh, and I'm, you know, of course, I'm tickled pink because this is what you want uh, with social media. You want large amount of engagement. So what I would like to do uh, for the rest of this podcast is talk a little bit about the B-52s. And maybe for those of you, at least of my generation, who were in high school in the late 70s or early 80s when this music first came out and kind of think like, well, they were they were cute. Maybe try to explain why I think that this band is important and worth looking at, especially in light of this video. Um, and, you know, my opinion, my thought is this. It's if something is very successful, then I try to put my personal opinion about it aside and I try to understand the reasons for its success, uh, sort of to try to do that objectively uh, and not throw my personal opinion in. Um, do I think everything the B-52s has ever done is great? No. Uh, some of it is kind of kitschy and throwaway. But on the other hand, I went back today. I took a long walk here in New York. I had to go pick something up. So I walked with my dog and we probably walked a good mile each way. And I listened to their first album and it's amazing. And it holds up brilliantly all these years later 40 you know 42 year 44 it came out in 78 so 44 years later brilliant it's absolutely fantastic and so let's let's get into it and let's talk a little bit about it now the b-52s are originally from athens georgia and um for those again who have been around for a while athens was a, a really great hotbed music scene in the late 70s and early 80s. Um, other bands that came out of Athens, including, uh, include, I mean, other than the B-52s, um, were R.E.M., uh, of course, the great R.E.M., 
Um, and uh, I'm not sure if the Georgia satellites... Well, here, here's Wikipedia. Music of Athens, Georgia. Widespread panic, REM, the B-52s. Um, and part of the reason for that success of that scene is that um, there is a large University of Georgia campus in the city. So often, especially in these kind of Midwestern towns like Madison, Wisconsin, um, I forget in Michigan where the University of, of, of Michigan is, but as a musician who toured a lot in the 90s, so 10 years or so after these bands came out, we got to play in towns like Madison and, uh, and in Athens. And they're awesome, awesome towns. At least they were, you know, when I was on the road now, that's already almost, well, it's more than 20 years ago, but uh, we really enjoyed uh, coming out of, you know, long drives through a sea of corn or whatever. And boom, you're in this kind of magic place where there's fantastic clubs and great fans and people that were wide open to what we were doing uh, in my band, Royal Crown Review, as, you know, swing musicians bringing back uh, swing. So in, in our own weird way, we were doing something very similar to what the B-52s did. Uh, let's look at the, let's look at the, uh, at, at what they were doing. First of all, you got to go watch this video and I'm going to talk about it in terms of the video. But um, the first thing we should talk about is the, the, the rhythm section. We'll get to the vocals in a minute. So the, the, the band was really like creatively it was a bunch of friends that got together after going to a bar and um, they just decided they were going to start making music. And they all had a similar kind of aesthetic idea, concept, direction. Um, and so they kind of went for it. And the vibe of the band, you know, you have to remember in the late 70s, punk rock had exploded on the scene. People what had been popular up to then in the mid 70s and into the late 70s was you know disco was huge disco was a very produced slick style of music um with big or string orchestras and horn sections um and lush vocals uh the grooves were very uh simple you know thumping dance grooves the productions were very lavish and um, at the same time, progressive rock had really made a lot of strides in the 1970s, something that I love. Uh, but punk rock was a, a complete sort of rebellion against these kinds of styles and against sort of the very commercialized uh, lifestyle that the 70s had brought, particularly here in America, but certainly you had the punk movement in England, uh, which was a working class thing, which was kind of going against the Margaret Thatcher, Thatcher era, um, you know, conformity, right? So it, with every generation, the, the 60s, they lashed out against the conformity of the 50s. Now, you know, the, the hippie culture grows up, becomes more um, consumer oriented, the values of that generation become co-opted and now, you know, the new generation comes up and sees all of that as a sellout. So punk rock in general and new wave were uh, lashing out against that. And one of the primary elements that made punk rock and new wave 
really cool is that they went back to an earlier era for inspiration. They went back to the early rock of the 1950s. They went back to girl groups. They went back to ska music of the 1960s, the original kind of ska and rock steady sounds. There was a lot of punk bands that that used those elements, ska and reggae. Um, you know, Elvis kind of fashion. The reason why is because styles like early rock and roll and rockabilly were raw. They were simple. They, uh, a young person could pick up an instrument rather quickly and sort of imitate this sound or this idea. They could put a band together and they liked that it was stripped down and that it was raw because that's what youth is about. It's about, hey man, I'm, you know, I'm just expressing myself in this, you know, in this particular way. And so often youth music is more stripped down and raw than its predecessor. Um, but in this case, certainly it was just a reaction to the consumer culture of disco and the whole 70s um, aesthetic that had evolved out of kind of the hippie era and and, and had really become a, a very different thing and much more commercialized version of it. And, you know, against Watergate and um, all of these things, these movements often have a political element as well as the, an aesthetic element. So the B-52s were, were right in line with that. Um, just another example of another few bands that we could think of. The Stray Cats, of course, came out in the very late 70s. Um, they, they had a very kind of rockabilly look. The Clash had a rockabilly look. They played a lot of sort of um, reggae music. Joe Jackson, I remember, was another Brit who kind of had that vibe um, kind of a use reggae elements and what he was doing. The police, their punk sound combined a lot of reggae elements. Um, the Ramones, uh, you know, 50s juvenile delinquent look with the leather jackets and the jeans. Um, and the and their musical style often sounded like 50s girl groups. That's what they were into. So kind of those harmonies. So, you know, there was a lot of bands at this time that that went in this direction. We you know, the cramps is another example. We don't even think about it so much, but, um, you know, today we take those things for granted, but this is what was happening. And they very specifically went to the fifties and sixties for their inspiration. And so the, um, the B-52s very much had this vibe going on. And Ricky Wilson, the guitar player, um, if you watch this video, he's playing what's called a Moserite guitar, which is a really cool uh, guitar that's not well known today, but is was a staple of 1950s instrumental rock sound. We think of guys like Link Ray, who was the guy that sort of invented distortion on the guitar in the 50s, um, and Dick Dale, and Bo Diddley, uh, these seminal guitar players that, that, that were noise guys that brought the distortion and the distorted sound and the heavy twang to, to rock and roll guitar in the very late 50s and early 60s. And so Ricky Wilson, he has this Moserite guitar. He has this kind of, you know, right? That's the main riff from Rock Lobster. And if you look carefully, and I didn't know this, he actually took two of the strings off his guitar. So he's only playing a four-stringed instrument. I mean, talk about primitive. And it just sounds freaking amazing. I'm looking right now at the video and I think he's even got the the uh, the top of his uh, 
strap is like duct taped, you know, duct taped on. So you got that going on. That's an immediate kind of a throwback thing. Then, you know, the 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 vibe of the the girls, they wore these crazy beehive uh, wigs, like over the top, you know, beehive wig that's like two feet high. Uh, and they wore kind of pedal pushers and these this very 1950s and 60s um, aesthetic. Uh, and, you know, that uh, the name, the B-52s, people, a couple of people asked in the comments on this post, why do they name themselves after a bomber plane? That seems weird, which it is. But B-52 was a nickname for the beehive haircut. So um, you can immediately see that vibe. So just aesthetically speaking, sonically, um, they're... they're they have this retro appeal. And if you, their particular brand of that was to sort of go like to uh, the Ed Wood, you know, the old crazy cheapo sci-fi movies, you know, those crazy soundtracks where everything was like, they use theremins and, um, and uh, all these, these crazy, uh, you know, even if you think of Star Trek, um, the main melody, there's a woman's voice, right? Way up high above everything else. So, you know, this idea of, um, and they're doing, they're go-go dancing, you know, in the video. Of course, that was a big part of their thing. Um, the, the drums are playing a surf beat, you know, all of these elements that go back to to 1950s and the if you listen to their first record it's it's really a brilliant mixture of a lot of these different things horror movies beach blanket bingo movies i mean the song rock lobster takes place at the beach and so it's a a goofy kind of a thing kate pearson at this time at least on this video is playing like what sounds like a farfisa organ and um you know again that was a that that sound that kind of cheesy organ sound and the the drummer um is uh keith um oh god what is it i'm gonna have to look up his name real quick here um keith strickland now when we were touring with the b-52s keith strickland had left walked out from behind the drums he actually did that quite a few years later and was playing the guitar part of the reason for that was that ricky wilson the original guitar player um had passed away in 85 we weren't touring with them till 98 so you know i think he part of his thing is he wanted to come out from behind the drums but one of the cool things about this band is that and there's another video on youtube you can find this on youtube of an entire concert of from the same year 1980 where they played at the uh capitol theater in dc i believe and what's amazing is that bill graham the promoter was very into early video um those of us, again, who are of a certain age, remember the earliest video cameras were huge. You had to put them on your shoulder. Uh, the quality was, it was black and white. The quality was very grainy. But there's, he he filmed a lot of concerts at the Fillmore East, the Fillmore West, Winterland, and the Capitol Theater. Those are venues that Bill Graham, the famous promoter who did all the stuff with the, the San Francisco bands in the 60s and everything. Um, he he was documenting these concerts and now a lot of that material has been released. And so not only you can find great talking head stuff, you can find great rush, you know, I mean, just every band that was kind of out there in the late 70s and early 80s that played at his venues were being 
vi uh, videotaped uh, and a lot of these concerts talking heads another band from that era you know I should also say in addition to the retro thing there was an art element to this um that has that ties into this 1950s 1960s aesthetic and a band like the talking heads also on the original kind of punk scene the the new york punk scene uh you could say had a similar kind of of a vibe there were lots of bands television and um you know lou reed had been doing that since the since the you know earlier but following in the kind of the velvet underground thing where there was an, an artistic element in addition to a musical element so all of this is is going on now we have to talk more about about this about what's happening with the band um by the way i should also mention if you listen to the first record there's all kinds of great sounds there's lots of weird percussion instruments it there's the farfisa organ there's the the, the heavy surf guitar one thing you will notice about this clip, and I, I made mention of this, is that there's no dedicated bass player on stage playing this. And this is really unusual. I mean, there were so few bands, particularly in the rock era, that did not use a bass player live. The, the biggest name of those being The Doors. Doors did not have a bass player. Their keyboardist, Ray Manzarek, used his left hand uh, on a, I'm not sure if it was a particular instrument to play the bass lines, a particular synth, a bass synth. But Kate Pearson, who in this clip is playing the synthesizer, is, um, I mean, the, the, the organ, she's, she has a bass synth that she's using to play bass lines on. But she doesn't do it the whole way through the song like a typical bass player situation would be. She does it at certain spots. And this is one of the things that just knocked me out about this video because I'm saying, where's the bass player? But you don't doesn't seem like there's a bass player missing. Now, one of the other comments I got, and somebody was really willing to like battle me to the death on this, several people claimed that there's there's another guitar track happening. And to them, it sounded very obvious and that they must be playing to a track. Now, I'm sorry, but this is 1980. <laughs> Nobody had in-ear monitors in 1980. Pro Tools didn't exist in 1980. Playing to tracks was a very complex process and the vast majority of bands did not do it and yes you have tv shows where bands lip-synced uh, but that would be you know the entire track was recorded and maybe the vocals were live or maybe the whole thing was lip-synced like old american bandstand or soul train episodes usually the bands did not perform live or even on ed sullivan but on saturday this was saturday night live by the way this clip was from saturday night live which in its day had some of the most amazing and controversial music on, not like today where they simply play whoever is the top of the charts and is kind of bought and paid for by the big big labels. Back in the day, Saturday Night Live was really subversive on every level. It was an incredible, uh, incredible show in its absolute subversiveness. You would see things. I remember seeing the Talking Heads doing Taking Take Me to the River on Saturday Night Live and just going, what the hell is this? And hearing Ricky Lee Jones doing Chucky's in Love, Steve Gadd playing drums. And um, I didn't know it was Steve Gadd at the time. I was a little kid. But, you know, just, and, you know, I, you know, B-52s and all these kind of really bands that were so unusual for that period would play live and and would be introduced to the world um so it was it was really cool things frank zappa was performed uh, a lot of times i just saw another saturday night live, live clip of of 
Paul Simon and George Harrison doing um, Homeward Bound, the Simon and Garfunkel tune, an amazing performance. DB1 drumheads and cymbals allow all drummers to hit hard in the middle of the night without a single noise complaint. DB1 drumheads and cymbals provide the natural tone and genuine feel of an acoustic kit, but only produce 20% of the volume of acoustic heads. These are Evan's first drum and cymbals to include proprietary technology that allows for unmistakable and authentic feel, crack, and buzz in an acoustic kit at one-fifth the noise level. Drummers, your neighbors can sleep, your midnight jam sessions can continue, all thanks to Evans, the most technologically advanced drum heads on earth. It's time to design your dream kit. You have a sound and look in your mind's eye, and it's time to make that dream a reality. Your sound emerges from the choicest materials and is constructed using the exclusive Sonar Optimum shell measurement construction, utilizing slightly undersized shell diameters, allowing the drum head the space to float freely with unrestricted bearing edge contact. Your look emerges through the ultimate selection of veneers, hand-polished lacquers, and premium coverings to create the stunning look of your dreams. Design yours today at sq2-drumsystem.com. You know, so you had to play live. So they, I don't think the band was lip syncing and it, definitely the song is different enough from the studio that, that it's not. But what is, would you have played, would you have had a second guitar that everybody would play along to? I really don't think so. And what's interesting is if you look at Kate Pearson's left hand, like I said, she's actually doubling a lot of the guitar lines with this weird bass synth. Um, but it's really inventive. It's really unique. It's really, really interesting. Um, so let's talk about the vocalists now because they're a huge part of what the B-52s are about and they are probably the most controversial part about what the B-52s are about. Um, by the way, since I've been talking, now the uh, the number of likes on this post has gone from 8,900 to 9,000. So, no, just across 9,100 Number of comments up from 1,400 to 1,500. Number of shares from 2,500 to 2,600. This thing is still just cooking along, blowing my mind. Um, so let's talk about the vocalist. First of all, you have Fred Schneider, who when we were on tour with the B-52s was the nicest guy, um, kind of the den mother of the whole tour and made sure that we had everything we wanted and, you know, super nice. The guy doesn't sing. He's made an entire career out of sort of talking his way through his vocal parts. Um, you know, he sort of narrates uh, and it's very silly and very ridiculous. Um, and yet, you know, they've got tons of albums, multi, multi-platinum albums, top 40 hits. Um, so the counterpart to Fred Schneider who talks through the songs are the two the two gals, um, Cindy Wilson, who's the sister of Ricky Wilson, the guitar player. So they were a sibling pair, and Kate Pearson. Um, and the the what makes it so special is that the women sing, and Fred talks, 
And often there's kind of a call and response going on. If you listen to Rock Lobster, there's definitely a call and response. He's going, went to the beach. Ooh, ah, you know, and it it's just works. It's one of those things about the band that, you know, in a lot of ways, it is kind of like a 50s girl group kind of a situation, but with this weird new wave punk rock modern edge thrown into it. Um, and the girls, what's cool about the records is that Fred is not on all the songs, so his shtick doesn't get old. Um, and the way they utilize it, it's very interesting. And it just kind of becomes part of the band's sound. After a while, you're not like, is he talking through another song? No, you're just like, this is what the B-52s sound like. Um, and the girls do a lot of really interesting, weird harmonies. A lot of things in fifths that sound like, you know, Roman, uh, you know, with no third in them. Uh, strange harmonies, unison vocals. And one of the things when I first heard the B-52s that, and I hope I'm not going to insult them by saying this, but to me, they're a lot of times the girls are slightly out of tune um and it's almost like if they were on american idol they wouldn't make it to the finals they're good singers both of them very good singers but it's almost a purposeful thing slightly out of tune almost slightly out of tune with each other when they do unison stuff um but and again when i first heard this band at the time it was so unusual to hear that you would never hear a hit song uh where someone was singing out of tune, but that was again part of the punk thing. It was about embracing the non-perfect aspects of the music, embracing the ugliness of the music uh, in many cases. Because a lot of punk bands, it was as it was about energy and just raw emotion as opposed to technical perfection. That's what I'm talking about. And that, of course, can affect people just as much as the technical perfection. It doesn't mean one is better or worse than the other. It just is an interesting way to think about making music, which is what I'm trying to get, you know, my followers on this page to think about is why I, I posted this post. I didn't think it was going to be so controversial, um, but hey, I love it. It, 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 it's got me so excited that I've got to put all these thoughts down into this podcast. So, um, so you have the two girls. They do a, a really interesting... Listen Again, listen to that first album. They're sexy, but they're also screaming, kind of punk rock scream. Um, they're singing the harmonies. It's it's very melodic what they do, but it, it they really stylistically cover a lot of ground. Really um, talented. But yet, it has this feeling of just like their four friends that decided to make a band and just picked up instruments and just kind of made sounds on them. Now, I honestly don't know. A lot of people said, how dare you say they're not trained? Isn't it obvious? And some people said, well, I know that, you know, Ricky Wilson studied guitar and, you know, and, and he does, in addition to the four strings, he's using alternate tunings and obviously he's done his homework. And all of them were well-versed musically. They all had a musical idea of what they wanted to do, but it doesn't come off that way. It comes off as really raw, really um, dry. The records are dry. The drums are dry. No reverb, not big lush. It's just, it is what it is. And I think the people that were claiming that their guitar tracks is because the band just, it's what they did in the studio is what they do live. There's no difference. They didn't go in the studio and, pretty it up after the fact they went in it's old school they went in and did what they do and the mics were just there to capture it not 
manufactured after the fact. Come out, play concerts, boom, you know, that's what it is. Um, so in any case, there's other things going on in this video that that really knocked me out. The no bass player thing really got me thinking, wow, that is exceptionally cool. Apparently, uh, they would run around and trade instruments and, you know, sometimes Cindy would take over the keyboard. Uh, other people would come out from the, you know, Keith would come out from the drums and play guitar. Uh, like I said, I'm not that huge of a fan to know what went on in which song or what happened where. But um, it's, and Fred is sort of, you know, he's playing cowbell, by the way. There's cowbell on Rock Lobster. And uh, I got a lot of, you know, more cowbell comments. It's like, all right, but the more cowbell people, yes, we get it. It's cute. But, you know, every time you hear a cowbell, you don't need to say more cowbell. We drummers get it. Anyway, um, and, uh, but it's, I, I don't know. I don't know what to say. Um, this, this clip just, just really impressed me. I'm trying to think of any other levels. Oh, so, you know, the other thing I remember when I was a kid in high school, the whole, um, you know, when everybody, the part of the song where it stops and it goes, it just starts, the, the, the sound goes down and Fred goes down, down, down. When we were in high school, we would all fall on the floor at that part of the song. That was just what you did. It was like those classic, you know, do the twist, do the frog, do the bunny hop, all the, you know, the, the dances going back to, you know, dance, the, the classic, uh, write a song about a dance and the dance and the song become hits and all the kids do it. That's what we did. We fell on the floor. It was very kind of punk rock new wave thing to do. And then, you know, down, 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 and it starts up again and everybody jumps up and starts dancing. So it's like, you know, it, it, it's, uh, but somebody said, why are they all falling on the floor? How ridiculous is that? You know, and it's like, no, it's part of a long tradition of songs that are about dancing. And they, they're doing ridiculous, crazy go-go dancing um, throughout the video. But it's, it has, it's not a send-up. I mean, it is a send-up. It's, it's not um, a, uh, uh, they're not trying to copy the 50s and 60s. They're taking the 50s and 60s and doing their own thing with it and really adding a very, to my ear, and I, you know, I've been a researcher for a long ass time, adding something that was really unique and artistic to it and subversive. Now, I should mention a couple other things that are very interesting, which is that uh, Ricky Wilson, the original guitar player, uh, died of AIDS. And I'm pretty sure that both he, I know for sure Fred Schneider is gay. Um, I think, in fact, all three of the original males in the band were gay, but I'm not 100% positive on that. But, but, you know, and by the way, R.E.M., Michael Stipe, um, another band from Georgia. And when we played in Atlanta, Michael Stipe was there in the dressing room, got to say hello and meet him, which was cool because I've been a big R.E.M. fan and first saw them in 1994, my freshman year in college. And that was when they were a young and hungry band. And it was really cool to see them at that period of their evolution. It was a, it was a college, college gig. It wasn't even at like a real venue per se. But Michael Stipe uh, is gay. And um, the fact that even when we toured with them in 1998, they had a, um, they had a, an audition in every city uh, and two people uh, would uh, get to go-go dance. They had these go-go dance cages. And for like the last three songs of the show, the contest winners would get to come up. They also had drag queens in every city. Um, 
part of the whole camp thing. You know, drag queens are, I don't know, there's so much weird controversy and there's so much hatred about drag these days. And drag has been around since the beginning of time. It's nothing new. Uh, it's, it's men who just feel comfortable dressing up in women's clothing. And it's very campy. The idea of all the makeup and the crazy hair, uh, part of that is like making yourself into like an uh, absolutely um, over the top uh, ideal of what a, a, a beautiful woman is about. And that's kind of part of the drag culture. And I, here in New York, I work with a lot of gay musicians, singers, I work with a lot of drag queens. I, I don't work with them, but I go up to Provincetown every summer where there's a whole drag culture. And I know drag queens, very great performers. Uh, it's just people. It's just a thing that they do. Just like I play the drums and I like jazz. Well, they happen to like drag and that's what they do. And it's really not a big deal. But even in even today, I mean, in 1998, you know, having drag queens at your show was not maybe the most popular kind of thing to do. So what I guess what I'm talking about is that the B-52s have always been um, promoting, uh, you know, and supportive of gay culture and not hiding that, not afraid of that. And that was something that, that impressed me um, when, we, when we toured with them. Uh, and the other thing that really knocked me out was that both the B-52s and the Pretenders were vegan. Now, today, being a vegan is not much of a political statement, but in 1998, I had hardly even heard, I knew, of course, about vegetarianism, but veganism was a new thing. Now, luckily, they had enough money that they could travel with their own chef. Um, and so they had incredible meals every night. And, you know, we weren't invited in on that. Um, we were eating the the regular, you know, food at the catering on, on all the tour stops, which was, which was good. We were doing what are called sheds, which are these big outdoor amphitheaters, um, like, uh, the gorge and red rocks. And, um, there's so many, there's a whole summer circuit, you know, that you go see these kind of shows in the summer cause it's outdoors. Uh, but anyway, they were all vegan. They had their own chef. I remember she was really cool gal from San Francisco named Joe. And, um, you know, they were out promoting, the things that they believed in as part of their musical journey as well. And that gives me additional respect for them. Um, so uh, I guess I probably should wrap this up. Uh, I, there's just so many things that I, thoughts that I had about the time that I spent with them, the what I've learned about them from this video. One other thing that I think is really cool. So, oh, so what I was going to say is jumping back into the video when they go down 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 they all fall down on the stage by the way i don't know if anybody in my class had actually ever seen the b-52s but we all knew to fall down <laughs> you know just do what the song tells you to do but during that time the guitar is going like every bar he goes down a note well kate pearson is singing it creates this amazing effect and it's these little kind of things. By the way, at the same time, they're all going down. Keith back on the drums is working a gong, which I never really realized before, but it creates this incredible combination. The guitar low, Kate Pearson matching him high and the, the gong making noise. And it just sounds great. It, it's brilliant. 
It's an absolutely brilliant arrangement idea. And the whole song is full of these arrangement ideas where if you listen to the record as well, stuff's jumping in left, right, and center. All these crazy cool sound effects that that harken back to the 50s and 60s. But this kind of punk, um, this punk uh, approach to everything. And the songs, again, they don't seem like much, but they're extremely well crafted. The lyrics to Rock Lobster, which I never paid any attention to, they're really cool. They're very clever. You know, he's talking about all the the different, uh, um, you know, the different kinds of fish and talking about the muscles are working out. And, and I don't have the lyrics up in front of me, but go check out the lyrics. Lyrics are very clever. Now, none of it is rocket science and they've never considered themselves to be high art. They've considered themselves to be like the world's biggest party band. And they have succeeded, succeeded like tremendously. They are still, you know, if this is their final tour, it's their 40 whatever year. Um, when we did it, they were the, you know, they were the headliner of the tour. The pretenders were, were the second act. Uh, the bees were the headliners and they've continued to just to do their thing. They've continued to progress and move forward. Um, let me, let me say one more thing though, before I wrap it up and talk about kind of their legacy. The other thing I wanted to say about the vocals that a lot of people commented on in this video is the weird noises that the girls make. So I was talking about all the different things that they do vocally. Well, the girls also do a lot of just like, like these, make these weird noises, you know, like at the beginning of the song, right? And then the song kicks in and they go, you know, and they, what is that? That's so weird. Why that? And then at the end of the song, it gets to this, you know, the final section of Rock Lobster is rocking. It really does rock. The guitar is really rocking. I think it's a, it's like, it it goes from being a novelty thing to being almost like a metal thing. If you want to, if you want to think of it that way, it's very heavy. And Fred's naming, here comes a, you know, here comes a jellyfish. Here goes a clownfish. And the girls are doing really weird kind of call and response to the names of each fish. And so when, when they get to these various sections of this video, people would comment, oh God, Yoko Ono would be popular in this band. Or Yoko Ono would love this. Or, oh, you had me until Yoko Ono showed up at a minute and six seconds, right? And of course, people love to hate on Yoko Ono. First, they hated on her because she... Uh, you know, they, they claim she was breaking up the Beatles. Well, we all know now from looking at that uh, most recent uh, documentary, the Peter Jackson one that came out, that she's, she wasn't breaking up the Beatles. She was sitting there knitting. She just was near her man, John Lennon. Uh, she wasn't actively involved in their creative process at all. She was just hanging, mostly saying nothing. So that is a bunch of BS. But also people have hated on her for her art and her music because... Uh, a lot of her music was extremely avant-garde and, you know, primal scream stuff. Um, if you if you listen to John Lennon's very last album, uh, it's called Double Fantasy because it's about his music and Yoko's music. And there are certain Yoko songs on there. And it was really the first time that I think they did stuff together. They had the Plastic Ono Band, you know, and Yoko was definitely a part of his solo music. But... She really steps to the front on Double Fantasy and, and her songs are, um, to say that they are non-commercial is, a, is, a, is being polite. I mean, she, she just is into weird noise and, um, and 
the thing that people have to understand about Yoko Ono is that she had a whole career and was actually quite well known herself in the years before she even met John Lennon. She was in New York um, on the very, very cutting edge in the, the mid 60s of the feminist movement of avant-garde art that was happening here. And she had really established herself. And that's in fact how she met John Lennon. I think he came to an exhibit of hers or they met because he was also very interested in, you know, what we might call high art or avant-garde art, which most people are not going to get at all. Most people are just going to go, that is just noise or that's just, what the F is that, right? But she, you know, she was, she really was on the cutting edge of that world. It is a rarefied world. It is a very small world and it's hard to appreciate, but it wasn't like she was just an appendage of John Lennon. So, what does this have to do with Rock Lobster? Well, people are like, Yoko Ono would really love that. Well, I went and did a little bit more research and this could be conjecture, but I got it from enough sources that I really think it's true. And this is this, that, that the B-52s, the, the female singers, the women, were influenced by Yoko and her strange vocalizings. And they brought a lot of that to their music. Now it was tempered and it sort of was part of the weird kitschy factor and certainly when you listen to Rock Lobster, you hear it all over the place. Um, weird noises, making weird noises, like big deal. It's cool, like get over it, you know? But um, apparently this album came out, their first album came out, in, I think it's 78. And John Lennon heard it and was so thrilled that as to what the, the women were doing and that this was becoming commercially that this was a commercial hit, which it was, Rock Lobster was a huge hit, uh, in addition to a couple of the other tunes off the record, that, that, you know, that he was inspired to go back in the studio. He had not been in the studio in a few years. And listening to punk rock, which of course, you know, the Beatles have been inspired by the original rock and rollers, Elvis, Eddie Cochran, Buddy Holly, people like that, um, that gave him inspiration to want to make music again and so he went back in and did double fantasy and prominently featured his wife yoko ono uh, again like her or hate her i'm just reporting uh, this very interesting connection between the b-52s and it sort of to me is interesting how um this uh uh how influences pass from generation to generation but it can also go the other way and go back to the original influencers. So I think it's cool because Double Fantasy was John Lennon's last album and it had, uh, you know, a bunch of hits and it was kind of a nice renaissance for him. I remember it was sort of a comeback album for him. And then sadly, you know, he was, he was assassinated. So just to wrap this up, which I need to do because I got a student waiting for me in a couple minutes. Um, what I admire, you know, people, well, the E-52s, they used to play all their own instruments. Now they just stand in the front of the stage. Well, they hired all these fancy pros and, you know, they're blah, blah, blah. And of course, you know, people are going to say, well, they're, they're sellouts or they're not as good as they used to be or whatever. Call it what you want. It's a different thing. And I, who've now been in this business for 30 plus years, I'm going into my 32nd year. Uh, I get it. You need to grow and progress. And a lot of times fans you know, do not like that. Royal Crown Review, we had some success in our first couple of years um, and, you know, doing a certain kind of thing. And then we wanted to expand beyond that. And a lot of the fans did not get what we were doing. They did not appreciate it. They just want the same thing over and over again. So bands have to grow. If they're going to have a long career, 
they need to do that. And the B-52s did that. They had a whole, you know, just a few years after they lost, they, they actually went into seclusion when Ricky Wilson died because, as I said, he was kind of the creative heart of the band. I think maybe the principal songwriter and was responsible for, for getting that amazing sound. Well, when he died, I mean, especially only at the age of 32 from AIDS, terribly tragic loss, um, they, they kind of quit. But then they decided to come back and they came back um, with Cosmic Thing, which, you know, then they, they had their, the new B-52s, Love Shack and all that. A lot of people hate Love Shack. I hated Love Shack for years. But uh, hearing it every night for 30 nights uh, or 60 nights, we, we were on the road for like two months with, the, with those guys. So 40, 50 times, I grew to really like that song and to watch my buddy Charlie Drayton play it. He played it on the record and man, talk about a groove. But um, to me, uh, I'm I I think they're fabulous. I'm I'm I think it's a huge musical success story that sort of four friends from from college or from a college town can kind of make a band and then turn it into a, a full career for years and years and years. And I do hope they get into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame because I think they really deserve it on every level. So go check out the post facebook.com Daniel Glass forward slash Daniel Glass drums all one word. And check out the Daniel Glass European Jazz Intensive. It's going to be our third year in Europe. We did four years in New York. That's coming October 12th through 16th, 2023. We hope to see you there. Thanks for listening. Be cool. Keep swinging. And I will see you soon. Drummer's Resource is produced by Revoice Media. Executive producer Nick Ruffini. That's me. Edited by Justin Thomas. Video editing by Tomas Shannon and graphic design by Catherine Wade. For more music and entertainment podcasts, be sure to check out revoicemedia.com. Oh, 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 oh